0: Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. So last time, we discussed the collapse of the Rebellion and Ferdinand trying to assert his authority over the HRE to stabilize the dynasty. This week, we're going to cover more specific details in his plan and other ways that his supporters gained power and maintained the dynasty. One thing that is essential to understand is this system does not operate like a modern government that we imagine. It was more feudalistic. It was impossible to become an absolute monarch in the HRE due to this the sheer decentralization of power, especially with various noblemen able to raise armies with their own money. And last week I mentioned that a lot of the political rivals of the Habsburgs and rebels against the Habsburgs had their political knees cut out from under them, and their lands were given to loyal supporters of the Habsburgs, which increased said loyal people's power. This gave the dynasty a more stable position to make laws and policy than if those people who had opposed them did not have their power reduced. There also was the overhead threat of, hey, don't if you do this, a sword's going to come down on you. So that was just something that just hung over the estates, like a sword of Damocles. On a personal note for the Habsburg dynasty, Ferdinand in his will changed the inheritance of the royal titles to primogeniture, which means that his son was guaranteed to take the throne in 1621. Primogeniture is specifically the oldest child, generally male, would inherit all the lands and titles and such of the father and mother. On the Habsburg side, women weren't allowed to inherit till Maria Theresa, which was in the mid-18th century. It was more common to see men inheriting everything than women across Europe, especially royal titles. Ferdinand, however, did have to pay some political cost to this, He was forced to give up the Tyrolean lands to his brother Leopold during this time period. Tyrol is a part of the western extreme of Austria at this time that eventually got absorbed into Bavaria. But the move wasn't illogical. Leopold had been the governor of that territory since about 1618, so giving it to him was unnecessary evil. The estates were also not dissolved. The estates meaning the voting bodies of all of the various duchies and kingdoms in the HRE. Lusatia and Silesia were able to keep their privileges since Lusatia was occupied by the Saxons early in the war and Silesia assisted imperial troops after the initial rebellious wave collapsed. Ferdinand was rather limited when dealing with other non-parts of his territory, but he effectively could only institute new constitutions in Upper Austria, Bohemia, and Moravia. But those stayed roughly the same up until the revolutions of 1848, which is an ancient time period. If you're interested in that, I'd recommend the revolutions podcast and in any of these constitutions. If there was a monarchy or title like that, then it would become hereditary to the Habsburgs, which was specifically a target against Bohemia to avoid a Bohemian revolt like that happening again. Which which is pretty smart when you think about it. The estates did keep the right to taxation and determine taxes within their own land, but they no longer had the sort of right of just free assembly. They were at the whim of the monarchy. The letter of majesty was also revoked, which meant that Catholicism was the only accepted religion in the empire, which would not assist in long-term peace. That is not to say that the dynasty was just persecuting Protestants. It was a little more complex than that, seeing as a lot of northern German territories were Protestant, especially Saxon which was the Protestant-ruled area. It just was that they lost the protections they had under the law of majesty, which would dealt with, you know, something from building churches, that sort of thing. Interestingly enough, the Jews were actually given special exceptions and dispensations, which would not have been a common thing at the time. There was not a lot of detail on what those dispensations were specifically, but it's just interesting to note that Habsburg seemed to treat Jews slightly better than most places in Europe at the time. The end effect of this was that it put the empire and its people further on under the thumb of the monarchy, rather than through the diets and various legislative bodies. This was a loss of power on their front, and they became more of a administrative role and bureaucratic role than a more corporate independent role. One of the theoretical upsides of this was the estates could determine how much to tax on their own lands, which in theory meant they could more reasonably tax people, but politics is politics, people could be heavy on taxes, but I do see where that the argument would come from if the land knew how much it made and how what the people made. They could tax people Without draining their money more easily. The second effect of all of this was that it left the monarchy as the only one who could really do international diplomacy, seeing as the states lost the ability to negotiate on their own. Another thing that Ferdinand did to try to change up the administration of the empire was he separated the Imperial and Austrian chancelleries. A chancellery was just the body that helped run the day-to-day mechanisms of the empire and diplomacy. The Imperial Chancellery was generally used for external relationships as an out. Outside the HRE specifically focused on other imperial estates, and the Austrian one more dealt with the internal matters of the Austrian territory and as well as running the monarchy in general, though sometimes they cross paths. This was effectively the beginning of what we call centralization of power under what we could write as, as a central government, which is relatively new at the time since the HRE was still coming out of the old feudalistic model. This was the time period that interested me because this was not the only country that was doing this. I liked history looking at it from a societal change point of view, so that's that was just a very obvious thing about that. And like I mentioned a little earlier, the land of defeat enemies was taken partially and given to allies of the Habsburgs. This undermines their economic and political threat as well as created more loyalty among those who got this land. This also created a pool of loyal talent that... Ferdinand could recruit from for administrative roles, generals, people with talent, that sort of thing. This reoriented the patronage system to center on the crown, which gave them more influence. The patronage system, if those of you are unfamiliar, I believe I covered it in the chapter on the HRE, like way at the beginning of this, but effectively the patronage system was someone could give money to another nobleman, and the relationship was one person got money and the other person had to support the house the other way, whether it be politically, economically. The other side was getting some sort of benefit that wasn't just direct money and the web would extend further and further down if the crown gave money to somebody else and then that person could support somebody else etc etc but in the end it all came back to the crown which would become the glue that actually held the hre loyal to the habsburgs for the next several generations this change wasn't really felt right away but starting with the post-war children they benefited from the new arrangement of europe they got money influence power and all they had to do was suck up to the dynasty There was no urge to change the system seeing as if you for the dynasty, you could get benefits. Again, I'm generalizing. There's people that will dislike the empire, all that, but it's just some perspective on why someone like HRE held together. I should note that many of these changes came from fiscal logic and was more improvised for the time. This wasn't intended to be like this is going to stabilize the, the dynasty for generations and generations. It was something that was short term gain that happened to benefit long term. On another somewhat separate note, many people who were rebels and other people who were seen seemed to be enemies, were arrested, and given the death penalty for opposing the dynasty, especially those under the imperial ban. The imperial ban is the official outlaw under the empire's authority. Initially, it was more common for people to, to get executed, but as the Catholics began to get the upper hand, Ferdinand turned some of their sentences into lifelong prison sentences, especially after his various supporters realized that executing people would create long-term conflict with the people that were, you know, getting executed and their families and just general religious tension as well. But enough people, or at least given them long-term prison sentences, ...would create better goodwill than looking like a bloodthirsty emperor who wanted to punish his enemies. That one was a little bit of a side thing, not super essential, but just an interesting note I saw when I was reading. Overall... What the Emperor did was less overt centralizing of power, and he more reoriented how the system functioned and how the system was loyal to him and the dynasty. Many of the changes would help assist in creating a more central government, but that was not the intended effect at this time. It just made it more essential to support the dynasty than previously you needed to. And I think Ferdinand did a rather smart job here. Again, there was problems, and he wasn't perfect and he was still a more ambitious man, and not exactly the most religiously tolerant, but the fact is he did stabilize the government in the long term for the hre in austria so i have to give him props for that however that was not the only thing that i need to talk about here and then the next one is property i didn't mention property before but since around 1620 people had rebelled against the dynasty had had part of the property taken away by the government which was specifically done by the Liechtenstein commission uh just to give you a scale of how much property was taken this is the largest expropriation of property up, up until the communist land expropriations in 19. 19- 1945. The land expropriations continued up until 1623, when there was enough protest to get them to stop this. Although by this time, most of those who had rebelled had already taken. Although by this point, most of those who had rebelled had already had their land taken from them, so there was no need to do that. Burgers were still getting their lands taken, but this is at a much smaller scale. Uh, burgers are wealthier people who tend to live in cities. Slash, general city dwelling people. If you guys want numbers, I have I have some for you. Around 680 bohemian noble families lost their property with 166 losing basically everything 135 Prague burgers also lost theirs along with along with others in around 50 or so towns throughout bohemia 150 moravian estates were seized from around 250 families which to give you an image described in my narrative book that i'm using over half the moravian population ha- changed their landlord which is rather significant another fact of this was in bohemia german families became more in- influential than native noble families which was a sticking point in czech history and even up to the 20th century was considered effectively sort of a long-term crime punishment for bohemia You should keep in mind that taking land was not unusual or something people would challenge on a legal basis. Most people threatened with it would try to claim mitigating factors in order to avoid or reduce the punishment, which in many cases was granted just with a lesser punishment. The Crown actually only took around 1% of the total land taken from the rebels in this time period. Most of the land was given to other supporters, seeing as people seeing the Crown taking all the land would view it as an overstretch of their authority. The Crown tended to avoid taking land from family of those related to rebels, only taking land from people who were directly involved in the rebellion so they wouldn't take land from the brother of a guy in the rebellion or in certain cases if someone abdicated their position as the ruler they wouldn't take it from their children either which many nobility would try to avoid having their family's land taken in titles. They also tended to have forced auctions which would have people sell off their land for a somewhat cheaper price in order to compensate them for their land although this was usually paid with the base coinage which was coins that were worth less than the standard coinage And like I covered earlier, this expanded the client and patron system due to giving the land of various rebels to people of various groups in Europe, such as the Germans, Spanish... Belgians, a number of other groups that live in the HRE, more families held spread out land than they did before whereas new families who were granted land became integrated with the Habsburg elite court. Between 1621 and 1656, over half the nobility of Bohemia were made up of groups like Germans, Spanish, Italians, Belgians, which for a country that none of those people are Slavs or Czechs, that was not a happy thing for the locals. And most of those people were either army officers or Catholics from the empire. One Side effect of this was that there were a few families that became super rich. Three in particular that were noted were the Liechtensteins, the Lobwitzes, and the Slavadas, who were actually a Bohemian family. They all controlled large swaths of land, which granted them great wealth and political power. And the fact that only one major Bohemian house had lands in Bohemia and was of political influence effectively broke the old social cohesion of Bohemia. These wealthy landowners became more focused on larger politics and did not focus on local politics, which meant they were not as worried about the local people. Many of them actually became absentee landlords as wealthy landowners would become administrators of larger parts of the empire, which meant they had to be away. This was again reflecting that the old feudal methods of governance were coming to an end. The world was changing and it wasn't the only, only country doing this. And one thing I will note that will you'll see in this war is Europe was not the same before and after. There was a definite shift in political politics and religion and the like. And I hope Hope as we go on, you guys will definitely note that and think about what that means, why it was that way. It's certainly something that I was noticing when I read overviews of it. I just want to thank you for listening in, and I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we will discuss the Palatine lands and the attempted re-Catholicization of the Empire. The social media links will be in the description or on the various links themselves you can email me at 3decot at gmail.com or contact me through a contact form on the website reminder i have a patreon if you should support me and i'll see you guys next time